It's great to be with you all this morning, and it's great to study uh, this letter uh, to the Ephesians with you all. Um, I, I pray that God has been using it um, as powerfully in, in your all's lives as he has mine. Um, as is the case, anytime you teach or preach, I think uh, it does more for the one teaching and preaching than it does for anyone who's listening. Um, so this, this study has, has benefited me greatly already, and I pray that it has, has you as well. Man, this, this text today is so rich. I, I had intentions. My intentions were uh, for this sermon to be verses 4 through 10 today. And there's just too much. Like, I, I ran out of time. We would have had to stay longer than any one of you wanted to remain in this room. Um, or paying attention online. And so I, I, I kind of last minute really had to kind of break it down into two sermons. And so uh, we're going to get through verses 4 through 7 today and then just kind of put our finger right there at the end of verse 7 and the beginning of verse 8. And we're going to look at verses 8 through 10 next week. And so, um, but what a blessing it is to be able to spend so much time uh, in this rich, this rich text together. I have been uh, preaching now through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, this is my sixth week. And <clears throat> we've learned that in the Greek, that chapter one is actually just a short introduction followed by two really long sentences. That's all chapter 1 is. The first sentence is verses 3 through 14. It's 202 words long. And then the second sentence is verses 15 through 23, and it's 169 words long. And as we talked about that, I even challenged you as a spiritual exercise to attempt to write a 200-word long sentence of praise to God. Now, I don't know uh, how many actually took, took that challenge on, but I know that at least one of you did, and not to embarrass this person at all, I saw they will remain nameless, but I know that this person did because they wrote it out and uh, photocopied it and mailed it to me, and I loved it. It was beautiful to read. Uh, and this person said they could have continued going, and their one sentence of praise was actually 325 words long. Um, and so I, I appreciated that so much, and uh, it was so beautiful to read through that. But it, it just speaks to this, this uh, what that, that first that first section of Ephesians 1, and Paul just kind of beginning this letter with this praise, this ongoing, nonstop sentence of praise. Um, so, chapter 2 should come, no, should come as no surprise to you that here at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, is just a single sentence. 
and it's 124 words long. Um, so you, you kind of, by the time you get through with this, you're just like Paul and his long sentences. And uh, he's got several more uh, before we get through this letter. But I, I've shared the links of these sentences for the past couple of weeks, not to bore you, um, but because it's really important to know it right now. For chapter 1, it was just kind of an interesting fact. But it's very important for this text, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, to understand that these verses is just one sentence. Because the subject of this sentence is not given until verse 4. And then there are three main verbs in this sentence, and they're not given until verses 5 and 6. Now, I was not an English major, and so I don't claim to be an expert on this. Karen uh, still corrects me all the time on the proper use of me and I. I I don't know when to do it. Uh, 48 years old, and I have to confess, I still get that confused. Um, Susan Samples is in the audience today, uh, and she teaches English for a living and could come diagram this sentence uh, way better than I, or is it me? I'll have to ask Karen uh, later, but either way, here's what I know. Here's what I want you to know today. The main point of this long sentence is that the subject, God, if you're one that likes to circle or highlight or square, here's the main subject of this long verses 1 through 7. There's a main subject, and it's here in verse 4. The main subject, God, has acted in three distinct ways. There's three verbs. God has made us alive with Christ. God has raised us up with Christ, and God has seated us with Christ in the heavenly realms. And so, as terrible as the news was last week, and it was really horrific, right? We all agree. Just in case you, you, you weren't here last week or didn't tune in last week, let me give you a quick review. We were corpses. We were controlled by the patterns of this world, by the prince of the power of the air, and by the passions of our flesh, and we were by nature children of wrath. As horrific as this news was, it's not even the main point of the sentence. In fact... Verses 1 through 3 form what is called a parenthetical remark, meaning you could just put the whole thing in parentheses. Oh, for sure, it's part of Paul's train of thought, but it's nowhere near his main thought. And it's helpful to bracket it in parentheses 
so that you understand that it's an aside to his main thought. And so you do not miss the flow and the important connection that Paul's making between the end of chapter 1 and verses 4 through 7 of chapter 2. Here's the connection. It's beautiful. The connection is that the incomparably great power of God, chapter 1, verse 19, that we talked about Easter Sunday, this incomparably great power of God that made alive and raised and seated Christ in the heavenly realms, this incomparably great power has also done the same for us. Do you see that connection? God made alive, God raised, and God seated Christ in the heavenly realms, and God made us alive. God raised us, and God seated us in the heavenly realms. I hope you can connect the dots. So easy, I think, to get bogged down in the despair of verses 1 through 3 that you miss the connection. And I think this is why it's so important to preach the entire gospel message. I also mentioned this a couple weeks back. The parabola of salvation. The Christmas story is so important. And the cross is crucial. And Easter Sunday is essential. And just as critical to the gospel is the ascension of Jesus Christ. Above all rule above all authority, above all power, and above all dominion, and his exaltation to the right hand of God as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Now, for, my, for, for the benefit of my kids and other young people who will not know this name, Paul Harvey was a radio broadcaster. And he would broadcast news during the week and on Saturdays at noon. Uh, And he was most famous for a segment called The Rest of the Story. And it it usually consisted of stories presented as little-known or forgotten facts on a variety of subjects. And he would tell the story so eloquently And he would end his telling of the story with some variation of his famous tagline, and now you know the rest of the story. And I feel a little bit like Paul Harvey when I teach about the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. I want to say, and now you know the rest of the story. Let me explain it this way. Twice in verses 4 through 10, 
Paul makes perhaps his most famous statement in all of his letters. The first time in verse 5 and the second time in verse 8. It's the statement, it is by grace you have been saved. Arguably his most famous statement that he's, he ever makes. It is by grace we have been rescued out of a life in sin. We're going to talk more specifically about what that statement means next week. But it's by grace. It's not by our works. It's by grace that we have been saved. We've been rescued out of a life in sin. Now, in the New Testament, Paul will speak of salvation as a past event, a present event, and a future event. It just depends on the context of his writing. Salvation is a big term. And, and here is how I keep it all straight, and I think it will help you. In the past, salvation means deliverance or rescue from the penalty of sin. In the present, it means deliverance or rescue from the power of sin. And in the future, it means deliverance or rescue from the presence of sin. Isn't that good? That's why salvation is such a big term, because it encompasses all of that. It's hard to refer to just all of that at once. Salvation is being rescued out of a life in sin. It's being rescued from the penalty of sin. It's being rescued from the power of sin. And it's being rescued from the presence of sin. And it's important to proclaim the entire gospel because if we end the gospel message on Easter Sunday, then all we've really dealt with is the penalty of sin. Jesus came, he went to the cross for our sins, and he rose from the dead to rescue us from the penalty of our sin. And that is the gospel, and that is good news, and that is life-changing, but there's more to the story. Jesus has also ascended far above every kind of rule and authority and power and dominion. And Jesus is enthroned as the Lord of lords and the King of kings in the heavenly realms. So the good news in its fullness is not only have we been delivered from the penalty of sin, but we are also being delivered from the power of sin in our daily life. And one day when Jesus returns, we will be delivered from the presence of sin for all of eternity. And it's important to proclaim that entire gospel because Paul reveals to us in Ephesians 2 that not only... Have we been saved from our old condition? But that we have been saved to a new position. And it's so 
important to know that. I want you to hear that. Let the Holy Spirit kind of work that into your heart. Paul wants you to know that you've not only been saved from your old condition, but that you have been saved to a new position. Paul tells us that God has made us alive and raised us up and seated us in the heavenly realms. Now, at the beginning of verse 4, there's a but. Because this incredible news of a new position in verses 4 through 7 stands in stark contrast to our old condition found in the parentheses of verses 1 through 3. So, how did we get from our old condition to our new position? How did it happen? And here's the way I've summarized it at the top of my Bible. What I have written up here is, by nature, wrath. By grace, wealth. By nature, wrath. By grace, wealth. I think that is the best way to summarize this one sentence in verses 1 through 7. By nature, we are children of wrath. We're, We're born outside of the garden. We're born separated from God, banished from eternal life with Him. But by grace, we're children of wealth. Several times in this letter, Paul uses phrases uh, about the riches of God to describe uh, the reality, this this wonderful reality of life in Christ, This, this, this Reality of gospel. Um, the first place, I just want to kind of walk us through them. <clears throat> the first place is in chapter 1, verse 7. Um, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. In verse 18 of chapter 1, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Chapter 2 and verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy. And then in verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. We are now children of wealth. The language of verse 7 is that God, His plan, His purpose for the church, His purpose for His people, 
is to show off and to demonstrate and to put on display for the ages to come on into eternity the incomparable riches of His grace. Now, I want you to stop and think with me for a second. If someone uh, were very wealthy, how might they show off that wealth? Well, they, they might buy a really nice car. They could purchase a really big house. You know, this time uh, last year, I chaperoned... Um, a senior trip for uh, my oldest daughter, Bailey. Um, she had just a real small class at her high school. And so at the time, we were able to go spend a weekend at a, at a house down in Georgia. Um, and it just happened to be in this neighborhood that was right next to uh, Evander Holyfield's home. Now, it's no longer his home. Um, Vander Holyfield was the famous boxer from that area. Uh, he has sold it now to Rick Ross, who's a rapper. Um, I, was, I was contemplating whether I'd even share that, but I thought, man, to be able to get Paul Harvey and Rick Ross in the same sermon, that's talented. So, uh, but anyway, it's still, this house was built in 1994, but it's still, to this day, the largest single-family home in the state of Georgia. It's 54,000 square feet. It's on 235 acres. There are 109 rooms. There are 21 bathrooms. The dining room seats 100 people. And the electric bill is about $17,000 a month. That's showing off your wealth. Paul says, God shows off his riches to us in Christ Jesus. He tells us here that God is going to extravagantly show off. Listen, you just think Evander knew how to do it. God is going to show off his wealth to you, but his currency is not the dollar bill. His currency is his great love, his rich mercy, and his abundant kindness. We've gone from children of wrath to children of wealth because God, remember, God is the main subject of his sentence. He's the primary actor in the story of salvation. God has made us alive. God has raised us up and seated us in the heavenly realms. Now, possibly you've heard this before today. If not, then it's just really cool. Um, but Paul made up words to describe what God has done for us. Best we can tell, these words were never used. Best we can tell, these words were not ever used in literature outside of the Bible after this. 
Paul coined terms that had possibly never been used before in order to describe the action that God took to bring us out of our life in sin and into our life in Christ. Out of the wrath of God and into the wealth of God. Out of our old condition and into our new position. He had to make up words to describe it. That makes sense, right? Nothing exactly like it had happened prior and nothing exactly like it has happened since. What Paul did to make these words is he added a suffix to, or actually, it was actually a prefix, excuse me. He added a prefix to all three of these verbs, which means together with. So instead of just meaning made alive, it means made alive together with. That's just one word. It's a new word. Instead of just meaning raised up, it means raised up together with. Instead of just meaning seated, it means seated together with. Now, these verbs do not refer to actions that are going to happen in the future. He's not referring to something that will happen to us in the future But instead, these verbs refer to the redemptive events of the past. And so what's so amazing about this is that Paul declares here in Ephesians chapter 2 that we too are included in these redemptive acts of the gospel. You cannot miss the significance of the threefold repetition together with. This is the salvation act. This is our salvation story. God made us alive together with Christ. God raised us up together with Christ. And God seated us together with Christ in the heavenly realms. Now, we were not literally there 2,000 years ago. But to make this just figurative in meaning robs the text of its power. It is the language of participation. You see, we are not just recipients of the gospel. We are participants in the gospel. Not only have we received the benefits of the gospel, we talked about these, adoption in Christ, redemption in Christ, and unity in Christ. Not only are we recipients of the gospel, Paul is emphasizing here that we are also participants with Christ in the gospel. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul encourages us to proclaim this reality about the gospel, not as a recipient, but as a participant. 
In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, I have been crucified together with Christ, and I no longer live. Paul encourages us in Galatians chapter 2 to proclaim that gospel reality, not as a recipient, but as a participant. And here in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul encourages to also proclaim these realities about the gospel, not as a recipient, but as a participant. I have been made alive together with Christ. I have been raised up together with Christ. I have been seated together with Christ in the heavenly realms. You see, brothers and sisters, we're not just recipients of the gospel. We're participants in the gospel with Christ. So we remain on earth at present, but we are already enthroned with him in the heavenly realms. We live in two places at the same time. And believers, we no longer live from our old condition in sin. But now we live from our new position in Christ. Let's pray together. Father, this is this is unbelievable. This is unbelievable. What, what, only you could, could do this. I read this and think, can this really be true? That you have made a way for me out of my old condition. And into this new position, seated in the heavenly realms with Christ. I pray, Father, that this reality, this true, real reality, imprint this upon our hearts. May from this day forward, may we never... Live another day out of our old condition, but from our new position. Lord, we have been saved. Not just from the penalty of sin, but from the power. Paul would declare that sin no longer has, has a sting. It's lost its victory. Lord, may we live in that way. May we live in the fullness of the gospel. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. This morning, uh, the invitation is for anyone who might be here or listening at home who've never placed your faith in in, in Christ. Not only uh, are you still fully um, in the penalty of sin, Not only are you still controlled by the power of sin, but you will be in the presence of sin for the rest of your life on into eternity. Father sent Jesus Christ to rescue you from that condition. 
and to raise you up to a new position with him, seated with him in the heavenly realms. I want to encourage you today, if you've never made that decision to put your life, to immerse yourself into him through baptism, we'd love to be a part of that in your life today. Let's stand together and sing.